0: Straight from the source tonight, delay, delay, disqualify. Donald Trump's strategy is on full display in two different courtrooms, a cliffhanger in the Mar-a-Lago case and dramatic final arguments from Trump and company in Georgia. And their effort to get the DA there, Fonnie Willis kicked off the case. Also, drastic measures being taken as President Biden says the U.S. military is now prepared to start dropping humanitarian aid from the air into Gaza to get food, water, and medical supplies to so many who are starving. Also, as lawmakers in Alabama, my home state, are rushing to protect IVF, couples in the middle of the process are still left shaken, fearing that their dreams of growing their families could be shattered. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Two more big steps in Donald Trump's full court press to keep delaying his most serious trials until after the election. For the Republican frontrunner, even no ruling really looks like a win tonight. That fact was only amplified after the Supreme Court dropped anchor this week on the federal case in DC. That's the one about his efforts to try to overturn the election in 2020. And then in overlapping hearings today, judges heard arguments in two of Trump's most dangerous cases, both personally but also politically. Both judges went home without a ruling. The former president sat in court near his home in Florida, as Judge Eileen Cannon said that the government's proposed July schedule for the classified documents trial was, quote, unrealistic. At the exact same time as that was going on in Florida, 500 miles north in the Georgia election conspiracy case, District Attorney Fonnie Willis grabbed a front row seat for apparently the final day of attacks, allegations, and accusations.
1: She violated her public duty as a prosecutor to serve her personal interests and the personal interests of her boyfriend.
2: Over 2,000 calls, almost 9,800 texts. I don't even
3: think love-struck teenagers communicate that much. Prosecutors don't act like this. Lawyers don't act like this. These people, Your Honor, is a systematic misconduct. She was the one playing the race card
4: in a way to try to deflect from her own conduct. It was a calculated determination by Miss Willis to prejudice the defendants and their counsel.
0: I should note Willis has denied all of those accusations, denials that her team repeated after the defense attorneys went.
2: It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. And it it, it is it's desperate. We have absolutely no evidence that Miss Willis received any financial gain or benefit.
0: The judge who is listening to both of those arguments says that his decision on whether or not he will disqualify Fannie Willis from prosecuting this case will come within the next two weeks. If she's removed, it would effectively end the case. Potentially, we have a host of brilliant legal minds to sort it all out for you. Here with me tonight, a pair of former top federal prosecutors, Ellie Honig and Jennifer Rogers. And Ellie, I mean, this is basically it. It is the ball game. We've got now two weeks to decide. Where do you think the judge's head is at on this? I'm
3: going to make a bold prediction right here on the source. Okay. It's 50-50. <laughs> Sorry. You, <laughs> you know, You know I would say if I felt strongly one way or the other. This one's so hard for me to peg because there's a thing we say as prosecutors sometimes, which is it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to be able to prove it. Now, having watched these hearings play out over the last couple weeks, I think there are very serious questions about when this relationship began, about whether Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade told the truth or lied on the standards, one or the other. There's no gray area here, about whether she has some sort of untenable financial interest. But the problem is the evidence was such a mess. It was so confusing and unclear and so muddled. And now the judge is going to have to sort of wade through this. And watching the judge today, he was begging for help. He was basically like, Lawyers, help me out here. What matters, what doesn't, what should I be paying attention to? And I don't think either side really drove it home. So neither outcome would surprise me but here.
0: You kind of thought that the defense attorneys did a good job with their closing arguments. What stood out to you? Well,
5: I think they did a good job at crystallizing what the issues are, you know, saying, here are the issues, Judge. Here, where you know, Here's where we think the evidence leads you to believe that she should be disqualified. I just thought that they were very focused in their arguments. I agree with Ellie. The whole thing is a mess. It's also really a big deal to disqualify her. I mean, this is basically the end of the case if he does so. So, you know, I don't know. I, 50-50, maybe I'm leaning <laughs> against 51-49. But I do think that they did a better job than Willis's office did at making their arguments in court today.
0: Well, down to it's not about her having a relationship with this person it's it's about financial misconduct that's actually yes. it's easy to forget because of everything that is said in court but but really what it comes down to is whether there was a conflict of interest or if the judge cares that there was the appearance of a conflict of interest
3: Right. okay so Conflict of interest gets a bad rap. It sounds bad, but usually a conflict of interest, it doesn't mean the person did anything wrong. It just means there's a crossing of wires here. I'll give you an example. I was conflicted off of a case and removed from a case because one of the witnesses distantly knew something to do with my dad. Had nothing to do with the charges in the case, and I didn't do anything wrong, nor did the witness, but it happens sometimes. Rem- I was taken off the taken case. Off. It, was given, it was a case I didn't want anyway, so I was happy, but went probably to Jen or somebody in our hall. <laughs> um, but it happens all the time, and you do it to protect yourself. You do it to protect your office, and you do it to protect the case itself. You, sh- you can't have—and this gets to the appearance issue—you cannot have members of the public— sort of saying, well, wait a sec, isn't there some conflicting interest here?
0: But the bar here is not really clear. And the defense attorneys came out trying to set a very low bar. But the judge himself, uh, I'm glad you mentioned him, because he had a lot of good questions today that that I do think reveal some insight. And one of those questions was, you know, is is buying gum for your boss a personal benefit? This is what he asked the defense attorneys.
3: If someone, you know, buys their boss a stick of gum, is
1: that per se disqualifying. It may not meet a materiality requirement, but it's a personal
0: benefit. I mean, does this like kind of create a slippery slope if this is a basis for disqualification?
5: Well, we don't know. And this is getting to one of the questions the judge is trying to figure out because the facts here are so crazy, right? They have amounts of money that Wade paid for vacations that they both took. Bonnie Willis testified that she paid him back half of that, approximately in cash. But it's all very rough. They don't have any records, so this is what the judge is trying to figure out. You know, where am I going to draw the line here? Because the law just isn't clear enough about it. That was a fumble,
3: by the way. The, the answer when he's asked he what a stick of he just said no. That's ti- a tiny amount, but nine thousand dollars or whatever is is, is what more. Because we're talking than a...
0: about our trips to Napa, uh, trips right. to Aruba. Like it's much serious, much more serious than buying a. piece Yeah, and
3: and this is a perfect example of where the evidence is so muddled, because it is clear that Nathan Wade laid out substantial amounts of money for Fonnie Willis, but nobody was ever able to identify how much, and she said, well— I kind of repaid all of it or most of it or some of it with cash. There's no receipts. There's no withdrawal slips. And so the judge has a, a tough one to wade, no yeah. pun intended, to wade through here.
0: Well, uh, Ellie and Jen, stick around because uh, we also have someone who knows Fonnie Willis well here. It is also someone who knows what it means to be a district attorney in the state of Georgia. Gwen Keyes Fleming is the former district attorney of neighboring DeKalb County. And it's great to have you back here on The Source. You know, what Fonnie Willis has done here, you know, from testifying in court to sitting there today As her attorneys were arguing from her office, were arguing on her behalf, she made her presence known at the court and was passing her attorney notes. I should note my colleague Nick Valencia said that she uh, was trying to light a firecracker under her attorney by sitting in that room today. I wonder what you made of how it came off.
4: So I'm glad you came to me because I've been sitting on the edge trying to jump in here. Uh, Obviously, she's very interested or in the outcome of this case. They've attacked her personally. Uh, and again, at least in my view reading, and this may be where I disagree with your guests in studio, I do not believe based on the evidence that I saw that the standard in Georgia has been met in terms of there being evidence, uncontroverted evidence of an actual, uh, financial conflict. Uh, And so, again, it is a high bar. The Supreme Court in Georgia is very clear in that matter and that the appearance of impropriety is insufficient. So I think what you saw from the DA today is her being in court and really demonstrating to all involved, the citizens that elected her, her team, uh, the defense, that uh, she maintains that this is her case. She's still involved, very heavily involved in this case, and she's going to see it through. Uh, And again, Based on what I saw and in this limited instance, the defense are the ones that have the burden here, and I simply do not
0: see where they've met it. So you think she ultimately will be able to stay on to prosecute this case?
4: I think there's a record. If you look squarely at the record, that is the result that I would come to. But certainly, as your guests know, we never can tell what a judge is going to do. Uh, And so I do think by the line of his questioning, he is concerned not only about the facts in this case, but he recognizes that if he strays from the rulings of the Georgia Supreme Court, he's going to have to find a new line. And so sometimes judges are reticent to do that. Sometimes they're willing to do that. And again, as we all know, the stakes are very high here.
0: Yeah. And one point that, that her office was making today was that a lot of what has been dredged up over the last few weeks is not really relevant to to the actual allegation at hand about financial misconduct, that they're just trying to embarrass her and, and bring turmoil into this argument. And at one point, you know, I just want to listen to some of the language that the defense attorneys were using today in this courtroom, knowing, of course, that cameras are also there, that we're carrying it live on cable news. This is just a snippet of what they were saying.
3: She put her boyfriend in the spot. My boyfriend, boyfriend, her boyfriend. They concealed it from all parties, from daddy, daddy. Daddy was there and daddy would know.
0: What did you
4: make of that? So, again, I think that that demonstrates how far we've gotten away from the actual issues. Was there any type of financial benefit contingent either on the outcome of the case or uh, anything else? And that's the law. And so, again, all of this, and as salacious as it is or as, as interesting as it may be to some, it has nothing to do with the underlying charges and the sufficiency of the evidence of those charges. And again, remember, she already has four defendants that have pled guilty and accepted some sort of accountability in this overall scheme. Uh, And she's indicated that she is ready to go forward within 30 days of notice from the judge. So I think Uh, A lot of this is and and defendants are able to raise whatever issues they may want to raise, but they simply have not connected the dots to demonstrate how they would be prejudiced uh, or that there is any type of legal conflict that would justify her disqualification.
0: Yeah, at least one of them said that if she does stay on, that they'll they'll ask for a, a new trial. Gwen Keyes Fleming, great to have your perspective on this tonight, Thank you for that. And of course, as all eyes were glued to Georgia, it was hard to ignore what was happening in Florida today. The Mar-a-Lago classified documents case It may not have been on TV, but it was no less compelling than what was happening up north. I want to bring in former senior Justice Department national security official and former senior prosecutor for the Robert Mueller investigation, Brandon Van Grack. And it's great to have you back as you were listening to this. And I know this is just so much for people to keep up with. So we're trying to tick through each of them separately but in Florida today, what we heard from that judge, Judge Eileen Cannon, who of course has so much sway over what that trial looks like, she said that she thought Jack Smith's proposed schedule to start in July was unrealistic. If you're Jack Smith, how are you taking what happened in the courtroom today?
2: Well, uh, you know, part of it is the realization that the trial is probably not going to happen in July, um, but you know, you have in that case, uh, the former president's attorneys saying, well, we could technically have a trial in August. And so I think you're still not giving up hope for the possibility of, in fact, having a trial this summer. I think that's really the focus right now. No one has said otherwise. And you at least have the other party that's conceding the possibility that could occur.
0: Did that make sense to you? Because what we've heard from all of Trump's attorneys the ones who have been on this program, they've said there's no way this trial, so complicated and dealing with classified information, could happen before the election. But yet his attorneys are now proposing a date that, that is in August, well before the election.
2: Well, it 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 can occur quite simply. I mean, the the classified information. In fact, the the judge has potentially, it seems, ruled on sort of some of the more difficult issues in terms of what classified information must be turned over to defense counsel. So it can happen. And in fact, if you, in terms of the filings and at the hearing, one of the key arguments that the really, really two arguments that. uh, former president's attorneys were making. One was this concern about election interference. That's not a, a timing issue. That's not a, a preparation issue. That's an election interference, which we can talk about. The second was concerned about just not being able to be in court. It wasn't about how do we prepare all these filings. There are a lot of issues, but the reality is, is there actually was um, at least tacit understanding that a summer case could happen. It's really up to the judge whether she wants to push the parties, but, but it's certainly within the realm of the possible.
0: Yeah, well, they were complaining about Trump being off the campaign trail to be in the courtroom today, even though his presence was not required. But, you know, at one point, Judge Cannon was questioning prosecutors from the DOJ about this policy there, you know, of no overt investigative moves 60 days before an election and Jay Bratt from the team said that it doesn't apply to this because the indictments have already happened. He's already been charged here and that that should have no effect on the timing. Is that how you see it as well?
2: That's exactly right. And, and let's just spend a moment. So this policy, again, it's not a regulation, it's not a statute, but it's a policy for good measure, is that the Justice Department shouldn't be taking actions, shouldn't be taking investigative actions that could interfere with the election. But in a case where there have been charges, the allegations are out there. These. You know, remarkable, inflammatory, serious allegations, they are already out there. And what the Justice Department is saying is there's no there's no interference issue. What we're talking about in terms of having a trial, it's not election interference. It's providing election information. It is actually forcing the government to present the facts to a jury. It is having the jury decide this issue if there's any interest in terms of the election. The interest is, in fact, having these trials so that the voters have this information before they make the decision.
0: Can I get your thoughts on one other moment where it was from reporters who were in the room said that there was a moment where Jack Smith sat up straight, kind of raised his eyebrows when the judge was asking a prosecutor on his team about when they planned to reveal their witness list, which the the prosecutor said they're not prepared to do yet. There's been concern over the witnesses' names being out there. What did you make of that moment?
2: Well, there's, you know, we don't have a a trial date yet. And so to ask the question, when are you prepared to provide the witnesses, the first question is, well, when when is there going to be a trial? And then we can work backwards on an appropriate time to provide the witness list. And the, the core issue there was uh, the defendants had filed a motion that disclosed uh, potentially the names of potential witnesses. And what the government was saying is, at this moment, so early in the case, before there's been a trial, we're worried about harassment. That is, those names, that information should be as close in time as possible to the trial, which is why it was sort of shifting. It's like, well, when, when do we get the witness list? It's like, well, let's deal with these preliminary issues, but let's pick a trial date first. And so there was sort of a little bit sort of putting the cart before the horse.
0: That's really helpful. Brendan Van Grack, thank you for that. And I've got Ellie and Jen back with me. Uh, what are your final thoughts on, on what happened in Florida? We talked about Georgia, but what about what happened in Florida today? Well, I think
3: it's good news for Donald Trump, any way you spin it. I mean, worst case scenario for Donald Trump, we get a tri- he gets a trial starting July, August, but that blocks the D.C. trial, the January 6 trial today. I Which think
0: the Trump team is well
3: aware of. Absolutely, I think Jack Smith all but conceded today, not going to get that January 6 trial tried before the election. I think he's trying to mm. salvage at least the Florida case because. Again, if the judge agrees with Jack Smith and puts this in July, as Jack Smith has asked for the Florida case, there's nowhere for the D.C. case to go.
0: But I think what is at the heart of this and, you know, Trump's team says, well, it shouldn't be about politics. But the Trump legal team is less worried about the classified documents case, not necessarily because it's less problematic, but because I think they understand the appearance of a former White House aides, the former attorney general the former or the current governor of Georgia, all these aides marching in to talk about how Trump tried to overturn the election is more damaging to his political prospects than even the classified documents.
5: All of that and in a jurisdiction in Florida, which is much more favorable to him with a much better jury pool in front of a much more Trump friendly judge. So for all of those reasons, I agree with you. That's what they want.
0: Jennifer Rogers, Ellie Honig, we'll be watching closely since we have all these fun deadlines to <laughs> wait for. Thank you both for being here on a Friday night. Up next, at the White House tonight, President Biden made this announcement that the U.S. is going to start airdropping aid into Gaza very soon. We're going to speak to a worker who is just there on the ground where people are desperate and starving if it's enough. Also, notable comments from First Lady Jill Biden taking on Donald Trump, casting him as a potential threat to women if he retakes the White House. President Biden says that the U.S. is going to start airdropping aid into Gaza, quote, very soon, a move that the White House acknowledges comes in part because Israel is not doing enough to get that aid to so desperate civilians.
1: Not enough aid is getting in. Uh, and not enough people are getting the food, the water, the medicine, and the fuel that they need. That's what's driving this. We, are rec- we recognize the situation's dire. We recognize the need is great. Um, and it hasn't been filled simply by the, the use of ground convoys.
0: As the president is grappling with the war that is now almost five months old, he was seen leaving the White House tonight with this book in his arms. It's called Possible, How We Survive and Thrive in an Age of Conflict. This is coming as the president is renewing his calls for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, a deal that now has become even more complicated than it already was after the carnage that we saw happen yesterday in Gaza City. Witnesses say the scene that you're looking at here is Israeli soldiers firing on a crowd of civilians who were rushing the aid trucks. More than 100 people were ultimately killed, many hundreds more injured. Earlier today, we had an Israeli government spokesperson on, and we pressed him on this effort to try to get more aid to those so hungry people.
4: So one option is to airdrop aid, and there was a successful pilot this week in cooperation with, I believe, Jordan, Egypt, the UAE, France, and the United States to airdrop aid into Gaza. And we're looking into other ways to deliver aid into northern Gaza and make sure, again, it gets to civilians who need it, while making sure but Hamas can't steal isn't there a safer, it?
0: Easier, safer, easier way to do this than just simply airdropping it? And I mean, the reason you saw that chaotic incident is people are rushing these trucks because they're starving. I mean, it's desperation in, in its fullest extent that you're watching. And we hear from the IDF saying, well... Our forces felt that they were endangered and that's why they fired upon the crowd after firing those warning shots that's what the IDF made Well, they said they
4: fired when people began to rush towards the soldiers but the in a way towards that endangered the soldiers
0: them. because they have food and they're starving Well I mean, that's why that they were rushing to the desperation towards the trucks and that the situation actually is not good and there's not enough aid getting in
4: Oh the situation is definitely not good we don't downplay that Hamas has brought tragedy and disaster on the people of Gaza by declaring this war
0: here tonight, Rondi Anderson, who is a senior technical advisor for the humanitarian group Project Hope and worked on the ground in Gaza for two weeks in January. And it's great to have you here tonight, Rondi, because you, you heard there, you know, the Israeli spokesperson talking about Israel doing everything it can to get aided. But tell
6: me what you saw when you were actually on the ground. Thank you for having me. Um, when I was on the ground in Rafa, there was constant bombing happening just to the north. And even in the time that I was there, that bombing was getting closer and closer. And as a result of it, we were seeing hundreds, if not thousands, of additional people coming into Rafah. Already when I got there, there was over a million people that had been displaced from the north, largely because their houses had been destroyed and there was violence in that area and they weren't safe. But also because of access to food and water, people had moved to Rafah. But while I was there, the violence continued to come closer and and closer. And the people were uncomfortable and agitated with seas of tents everywhere you looked, people squeezing together. And
0: obviously, a lack of access to food is a huge part of this. And so were you even surprised when you saw that video of the people, the Gazans who were so desperate rushing those aid trucks? Because, I mean, they're just struggling to get... Sufficient food at all, much much less fruits and vegetables, and just enough to survive.
6: We know that the people in the north are cut off. That even in Rafa, um, there the amount of um, commodities, including food coming in, is a tenth of what it was before this war happened. That We, we see lines and lines of trucks um, on the other side of the border waiting to come in. Like the aid is there, but it's blocked. But even when it comes into Rafa, it's not safe to move it to the north. So um, even if we have commodities in our warehouses, some can go. It's not that nothing is going, but as far north as Gaza, there are areas that are cut off, that don't have internet. We don't, we don't hear how they're doing. And even their families don't know how they're doing. So um, that level of desperation, I won't say that I was surprised, but certainly it illustrates how cruel the conditions are, how much suffering is going on, and how desperate people are. What do you make of this this move now to airdrop aid? And do you think that's
0: effective?
6: Uh, well, I don't know enough about airdropping but my guess is that it will just be a drop I mean <laughs> that it will it will not be enough that it'll just be a little tiny bit and what they really need is these semi-trucks that are waiting. They need the the border to be open and they need them to come in. And there needs to be protection in terms of moving around wherever people are to make sure that everyone gets what they need. I mean, airdropping seems like an extreme measure to me. Although, I mean, at this point, anything is better than nothing. Well, we saw
0: at one point where they airdropped it and it it fell into the water and people were swimming out to get it. But but on this talk of a ceasefire that, you know, at the beginning of this week, President Biden had said he was hopeful it could come by the end of this weekend. It now seems much more complicated than that, given what we saw yesterday, what happened with the IDF there on the ground. Even if there was a ceasefire tonight, though, based on what you saw, how many people would still die uh,
6: of disease and of hunger? We have um, estimates from the London School of Tropical Medicine that says at least eleven thousand more people would die, um, even if there was a ceasefire right now. And we wow. we very much need a ceasefire right now. But um, the the level of injury that. Like, The um, people that are in hospitals, even that have been treated, but that are recovering, that are still very, very fragile and vulnerable. And the level of hunger. I mean, we're seeing more and more acute malnutrition, particularly in the north. Um, And the infectious disease uh, that is everywhere right now, all of the clinics are seeing it. It's being reported. It's increasing. Um, All of that will take time. A lot of time
0: and a lot of time that those people don't have. Rondi Anderson, thank you so much for coming on to share your experience with us.
6: Thank you. It was
0: great to have you. Also here in the US, we're tracking an important story happening in Alabama. As lawmakers tonight, Republican led lawmakers in that state are racing to protect IVF treatments, but time is running out for at least one woman who is trying to have a baby with a uterus transplant. We're gonna tell you her story next. Republicans in the Alabama state legislature are moving at lightning speed to pass legislation that is aimed at protecting IVF and their providers. The state was sent into a tailspin just two weeks ago after the Supreme Court in that state ruled that frozen embryos count as children. It sparked fear among IVF providers and patients of potential criminal liability if embryos were damaged or destroyed. Within days of that ruling, three IVF clinics in the state paused treatments completely – Now, legislators, after facing backlash of that decision and major concern even in Washington, are trying to get a bill protecting IVF providers to the governor, Kate Ivey's desk, potentially as soon as next Wednesday. The governor has signaled that she'll support this legislation, which would essentially protect IVF providers from both criminal charges, but also from civil lawsuits. Still, the ruling's impact is already being felt by families throughout the state, and CNN's correspondent, Isabel Rosales, has the story of a woman who was born without a uterus and now fears that this ruling could shatter her dream of building a family.
1: Hi baby. Nearly two decades ago, this moment. What are you doing? Would have been unimaginable for Elizabeth Goldman. When I was 14, I had abdominal pain and I hadn't had a period yet. Barely a teen, she got devastating and life-changing answers from her doctors. I was told that I was born without a uterus, would never be able to
5: carry my own baby. Um, told that it was, it would basically be impossible.
1: Dr. Kathleen O'Neill doesn't see Goldman, but treats patients like her at the University of Pennsylvania.
7: It's not something that people talk about a lot because there are a lot of issues of stigma and shame around, you know, being born without your uterus. In
1: 2014, the world's first baby was born from a transplanted uterus in Sweden. In 2017, Baylor University Medical Center accomplished the same for the U.S. Then came UPenn, And finally, the University of Alabama at Birmingham in Goldman's home state. So I had to move up to Birmingham, so we basically left our life as we knew it. In the midst of a pandemic, she uprooted her life. On social media, thousands of followers watching her IVF journey unfold.
6: So like right here?
1: Yeah. And her uterus transplant. Months later came the positive test. It's a faint line, but it's a line. But it ended in a heartbreaking miscarriage. Then there was a Valentine's Day surprise. All the heartache, pain, determination, and nearly $60,000 spent on IVF cycles for Zari Grace. Five pounds, six ounces. She is like my biggest dream come true. Honestly, I can't remember what life
5: looked like before her.
1: But Goldman says her journey isn't done. She wants to make the most out of her new uterus. She's allowed two live births before having to undergo a hysterectomy. With uterus transplant, it's not a life-saving transplant, but a life-giving transplant. Every day, Goldman takes medication to prevent her body from rejecting her uterus, but
7: it takes a toll. They can have at least temporary effects on the kidneys, potentially long-term. They can have effects on the bone marrow. These women can become more anemic. So delays can be harmful to the patient. The ruling from the state's highest court
1: pausing Goldman's IVF treatments at UAB as she was gearing up for an embryo transplant all at the same university that hosts one of just four active uterus transplant
7: programs in the whole nation. The fact that this happened in Alabama is just really so unlucky doesn't cover it. It's so incredibly unfortunate because really leaves these patients in a a very bad spot.
1: This pause in reproductive care leaving Goldman in limbo and at risk of a medical complication.
5: The reality is without Doing another embryo transfer without doing
1: IVF, without having access to it, like my journey ends. Goldman can only watch and wait for lawmakers to act with no time to spare.
5: Yeah,
0: we'll continue to watch that and see if that bill does make it to the governor's desk. Meanwhile, today the two largest pharmacy chains in the United States, CVS and Walgreens, are going to start filling prescriptions for the abortion pill known as Mifeprestone. And in the coming weeks, it's going to be available there at select ones in a limited number of states, we are told. Both pharmacy chains have said that they would gradually expand that access to all states where it is legal to do so. That medication has been at the center of various legal challenges, including the one before the Supreme Court right now. The decision potentially restricting access to that pill is expected by this July. Coming up here on The Source, defiant Russians showing up in the thousands today. A remarkable moment, paying their respects to Alexei Navalny.
2: From executive producers Park chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew, as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th, exclusively on Max.
0: Thousands of Russians defying Vladimir Putin in Moscow today, a site that surely would have made Alexei Navalny smile. His open casket funeral for the Russian opposition leader was held in a church today as the service was filled with members of his family and his loyal supporters, after weeks of fear that Russia may never release his body. His mother and his mother-in-law were grieving. While outside the church, there was a heavy police presence that you could see. As of 9 o'clock here on the East Coast, we've been tracking this. We know that at least 115 people have been detained across Russia for paying tribute to him. That's according to a human rights monitoring group. Here tonight to talk about this, exiled Russian journalist Mikhail Ziger exchanged letters with Alexei Navalny shortly before he was killed and is also the author of War and Punishment, Putin, Zelensky and the Path to Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. I just wonder what you made of that scene today of these people who were truly risking arrest mm-hmm. by going out and paying their tribute to, to Alexei Navalny.
8: I think that's important. I, I was watching it the whole day. I was watching all the interviews with, with uh, all those people who were not afraid to talk uh, I was talking to my friends who are still in Moscow, and uh, the, the main impression is that the majority of the, all those people who came are the elderly people. These are the parents of those people who left the country who immigrated and it 's so it 's so so sad that uh, thousands of, of, of people came there uh, thousands of people are brave enough but um, yeah it's it's How all many more it's all heartbreaking.
0: do you think that there were that that wanted to go out, but they fear reprisal for obvious reasons?
8: you know it's it's hard to judge actually we we know that everyone was expecting uh, some kind of a, of a crackdown, and the, uh, there was a lot of police police was was trying to prevent people from coming coming to the church. Um, about a hundred people were allowed to come to the church. the service uh, uh, in the church was just 20 minutes mm-hmm. uh, to prevent people from entering. But uh, the amount of the people in that neighborhood was enormous. And like, and the police was trying to make as many obstacles at, as possible just to uh, not to let all those people um, join into one big crowd.
0: Yeah, I mean, you just can see the movement uh, going on even in his death. And, and his wife, Yulia, shared a video of just moments with her husband talking. Uh, She's been reflecting on this and she posted that they had 26 years of absolute happiness. And she said, yes, even over the last three years that that he's been in prison. She said, I don't know how to live without you, but I will try to make you up there happy for me and proud of me.
8: And she used the song, very popular song of Russian rock singer with the lyrics, uh, please don't die, otherwise I'll have to die as well. And that was really heartbreaking.
0: It must have been tough for you to see.
8: Yeah.
0: And she's vowing to continue on with his work. I mean, what do you think that that looks like for for someone who is, you know, we talked about before, you kind of compared her in the US to a Michelle Obama type, someone who doesn't embrace the political life in front of the cameras, but but now it has kind of been placed there.
8: You know, I remember I I started comparing her uh, to Corazon Aquino, former uh, president of Philippines who had to become the leader of, of the opposition after her uh, husband uh, Benigno Aquino was, was killed, and, and she, she became the, the president of Philippines after uh, of the throwing um, dictator Marcos. And so, yeah, there were rumors about uh, once she had she have to do she has to do that she she will do that. So probably uh, she she was left with no other options. And, uh, you know, and the first test for her is, is very near.
6: Yeah.
8: Uh, the presidential elections. We uh, were, expect, and- were expecting the, the, um, the strategy. Uh, she, she has already called for um, all Russians to come to the uh, polling stations uh, in, the mid, uh, in the midday, at noon. Uh, and to, uh, his strategy was to vote for any... Um, presidential candidate, except for Putin. Except Putin. So probably that would that might be very uh, risky for President Putin because probably if everyone sh- shows up, uh, he might not win uh, on a landslide uh, in the first round.
0: Hmm. Mikhail, we'll be watching that first test very closely. Thank you. For Thank you. Talk about your friend tonight. Up next for us in the U.S. is we talk about President Biden a lot. One thing we don't talk about is maybe the grudge holder in chief. There's an up-close and a personal look at the First Lady Jill Biden, her quiet but unmatched influence over the president, and questions about her relationship with the vice president, all of it in a new book. We'll talk about it right after this. Tonight, First Lady Jill Biden out with fierce criticism of the former president while on the campaign trail. She was in Atlanta earlier speaking to rally women voters, and she cast Donald Trump as a threat to women everywhere if he returns to the White House.
5: Donald Trump is dangerous to women and to our families. He spent a lifetime tearing us down and devaluing our existence. He mocks women's bodies, disrespects our accomplishments, and brags about assault. Now he's bragging about killing Roby Wade. How far will he go? When will he stop? You know the answer. He won't.
0: That address coming at the start of Women's History Month is the first of several events that she is going to be going to throughout key battleground states this weekend, highlighting her passion for women's issues. That passion, as well as her influence on her husband's re-election campaign, are all detailed in a new book that is out this week. It is called American Woman, The Transformation of the Modern First Lady from Hillary Clinton to Jill Biden. And the author and New York Times reporter, Katie Rogers, is here with me now, and I'm so glad to have you here. And you have covered Jill Biden so closely. And to see her come out today, like we have never seen her with that fierce of criticism of Donald Trump. I wonder if that's something you think she's going to be doing throughout the 2024 campaign.
7: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't like him. She has a deep, dis- she has a deep dislike of, of Trump. But like her husband, she has waited until now to really sort of bring out the, the you know, the torpedoes, sort to of speak. That yeah. We don't usually see that kind of um, talk from her. But I talked with her for the book um, about how she would feel if Trump was the nominee again. And she said it would just make me work harder to make sure he didn't win. So she's staying true to that and with um, you know Roe becoming such an issue this year, she's really targeting women voters. She's going around the country to swing states talking to women that she hopes you know she can rally
0: And you report about how you know she kind of steers clear of the West Wing she doesn't spend a lot of time there. But she still has a lot of influence on it and mm-hmm. a lot of influence on on her husband himself. You know, when he gives big speeches, she's always in the back of the room. I mean, how much influence does she have over, you know, something we talk about all the time, his age and his decision to, to run in 2024?
7: Yeah, I mean, she is somebody who she's the one who has the most concern, obviously, about the wear and tear of the presidency on him. He's the oldest person to ever have the job. So she is somebody who um, pays close attention to how, how much he's doing. Um, but she has also told me for this book and has said, I think publicly elsewhere, you know, this is his decision. She doesn't have the power to stop or start a campaign. Joe Biden is the North star here. It's not, you know, I think there are a lot of people who think Jill Biden is, is the one who can stop him or, or say that this is, this is, you know, what we're doing. It's, it's his decision. And she believes he can beat Trump.
0: She also has so much influence. You know, we, we referenced her as the grudge holder in chief. She kind of yeah. holds his grudges for him. Yeah. Like she never forgot when when Vice President Harris went after him, uh, essentially calling him a segregationist back mm-hmm. in, in the d- primary of the for the Democrats. She didn't love Ron Klain, who was the chief of staff at first because he had endorsed Hillary Clinton. But this part that I loved was this was about a press conference that Biden had done. It was about a year. He was coming up on one year in office. And I was there. It went on for forever, for two hours mm-hmm. or so. And you write, and I cannot believe you, that someone told you this, which is the best part, but that they had been gathered in the treaty room, that they were talking about, you know, his answer on bringing up Republicans, and Jill Biden was in the doorway all of a sudden. And, and President Biden is here, and she goes, why didn't anyone stop that? And then she continued and said, where were you guys? Where was the person who was going to end the press conference? Basically dressing down some of the most senior members because she felt like they weren't controlling right. what it was supposed to look like. You know, she's also somebody who thinks, you know, she believes that this let
7: Joe be Joe idea, that's a real thing. She wants Joe to be Joe, but she doesn't want Joe to be Joe for two hours <laughs> in the White House. So I think she that was her signal. It was a really strong one that you all need to wrangle this a little bit more. They had passed him, you know, they had tried to signal to end the, the press conference and he just kept going. And that was a really, you know, she doesn't usually have to get that overt actually to walk in and say what happened. But um, yeah, if she thinks something goes, you know, is going awry, she will, she has no problem leapfrogging, you know, over yeah, everyone else is clear. and saying, but yeah. I mean, the
0: book is not just about Jill Biden though. It's about the job of the first lady, which is a pretty ill-defined role. It's yeah. kind of up to every, it's so far only been first ladies, but it's, it's so far up to each of them to kind of decide what it looks like.
7: It's true. And I think what is, the, the gist of this book really is that since Hillary Clinton, who was so ambitious and so policy oriented and really sort of went too far in terms of trying to reform American healthcare, the women since her have been sort of the, um, a theme has been reluctance except for believing their husband could win. So the key to this role is to stick to your to what you're comfortable with and be a polished messenger or, you know, or not. The role is optional.
0: The book is incredible. I loved it. I'm so glad you joined me on it. It's, it's worth for everyone to read. So thank you for coming in. Katie Rogers, great thank to you. have you. And thank you all so much for joining us this night. And every night this week, Santa Night with Abby Phillip starts now.
2: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high quality sleep every night. Sleep Next Level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
8: Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii.
1: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the
2: Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832